Hey, this is Victor Antonio, and rarely do I get excited about doing an interview. So a month or so ago, Jonah Berger reached out to me. Jonah Berger is an author. If you don't know who he is, you will know who he is by the end of this conversation. And when he reached out to me, I couldn't believe what was in my inbox, because I am a fan of Jonah Berger. He's written several books, and his latest book, Catalyst, is an exceptional book. So he has the book. It's coming out in a few days. And he said, Victor, I'd uh, love to be interviewed on your podcast. I think your audience would love the book. He sent me a copy. I went through the book, read it, devoured it, and then reread it again before the interview. And this interview you're about to hear, I am telling you, it is packed with great content, great information on how people make decisions, how they buy or what prevents them from buying. I'm super excited for you to listen to this interview. Let's jump into it right now. All right. So the first question I have, Jonah, is tell me, you know, give the audience a little background about who you are, and then we'll get into why you wrote this book. Sure. So uh, in my day job, I'm a marketing professor at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, I've been there now for 13 years. Uh, I do research on change, word of mouth, social influence, how products, ideas, and behaviors catch on. Uh, a number of years ago, I wrote a book called Contagious, uh, Why Things Catch On, uh, that led me to do a bunch of speaking and consulting with a variety of organizations. And so now I spend about half my time uh, doing teaching and research, and the other half working with everyone from big companies like the Googles and Apples and Nikes of the world to uh, small startups. So, so uh, pun intended, what was the catalyst for the new book coming out next month in March, The Catalyst? Yeah. So, you know, um, since Contagious uh, came out, I had an opportunity to work with a variety of groups, uh, everything from uh, very exciting uh, companies to less exciting industries and everything in between. Uh, and I found again and again that uh, people had the same problem which is everyone had something they wanted to change. So for the sales folks in the audience, it's the client or customer's mind. For the marketers, it's consumer behavior. For employees, it's their boss. For leaders, it's you know, the organization as a whole. Everyone had something they wanted to change, but it didn't seem like what they were trying was, was working. Uh, we often have this notion that if we just push harder, things change, right? I mean, that makes a lot of sense in the physical world. If you're sitting in front of a chair and you want that chair to move across the room, you push the chair, the chair goes. And so we think the same is true in the social world, right? When we want to change the client's mind, we just think, oh, I'll make one more phone call, give them some more facts, some more reasons, make one more PowerPoint presentation, they'll, they'll come around. Um, but as we know, people aren't like chairs, right? Uh, when we push people, they don't just go, they often push back. And so the question I kept asking myself on all these projects was, could there be a better way? Could there be a better way to change minds, organizations, and, and the world more broadly? And, and I love the, one of the, and we'll get into the book, especially the model that you use. What I, what I loved about it was that you understood sales reactants, right? For my sales listeners, you understood sales reactants, but you also understood implicitly that the market has changed. Too many people are still using strategies from way back when that simply don't apply today. Yours is more of a, of a pull strategy, if I can say it that way. What would you yeah. add to that? Certainly. I mean, I think um, uh, I very much agree, right? A lot of what we think of is pushing. You mentioned the word reactants. When we push, people push back. They react against the message. We may talk about that more in a couple minutes, but that's clearly going on. And so one thing I noticed was there was a different strategy that smart change agents used. They didn't push harder. Uh, they didn't ask, what could I do to get someone change? They asked a slightly different question. Why hasn't that person changed already? What's stopping them? Rather than think about what they could do to push, they think about removing barriers. And that's exactly, by the way, 
create what catalysts do in the chemical world. Catalysts don't create change by pushing harder, adding more temperature or pressure. These special substances reduce the energy required to make change happen. Seems crazy, but that's how they work in chemistry. And the same thing is true in, in the social world. It's not about adding more reasons or more information. It's figuring out what's preventing change from happening and how can I mitigate it? I think a, a good analogy or a good way to think about it is almost like your car. So you get in your car, you're trying to get your car to go, um, you know, you step on the gas, you put your key in the ignition and you think it'll go. If it doesn't go, sometimes we say, okay, I just need to press on the gas more. I just need to push a little harder. It will go. Uh, we rarely though go, wait a second, what's going on with the parking brake? Maybe I just need to depress that parking brake. And, and that's what this book really at its core is all about. Just as you nicely said, rather than pushing, how can we figure out what those parking brakes are and mitigate them and, and accordingly make change more likely? I always use the analogy when I do a lot of speaking on sales, I talk about the iceberg. You know, we've all heard the 1090, right? 10% you can see none you can't. 10% yeah. is what we typically sell to. Feature, yep. benefit, advantage, gain, all that wonderful stuff. What you highlight in the book is what I talk, but you went into, you really got into it, which is I enjoy it. What's, this, what's below that water level? Yes. What's holding? What's that real resistance holding oh, them back? Yeah. And so let's get into it because I'm excited about this book. Dude, I, okay. I've been looking forward to speaking to you. <laughs> and so, so you came up with the, this model, Reduce, which is how you structure the book. And again, you have to get the book worth every penny. Let's go through your model, Reduce. Let's just give a high level of what Reduce is, that model. Yeah. So REDUCE is an acronym, uh, and it stands for the five key barriers that often prevent change. And that's reactance, endowment, distance, uncertainty, and corroborating evidence. And each of those is a barrier we often see, whether we're trying to change a client's mind, a customer's behavior, or even something in our own organization. Not all five always happen at once, but it's a great set that often happens and a great way to say, well, what are those barriers and, and how can we mitigate them? Yeah. Well, Let's go through the first one. And by the way, I got some cheat sheets here because I really, like I said, studied the book. And so let's get into the first one. I know we're not going to be able to cover all five, maybe. Uh, let's talk about reactance. Give me, you know, talk about that a little bit, just kind of expand a little bit. And then give me one of the examples that you have in the book. Perfect. Yeah. So I'll actually start with an example because I think it's a fun one. So uh, many of your listeners may be familiar with Tide Pods. Uh, those uh, little packets that you stick uh, in, the, in the washing machine to do the laundry. Uh, but you may not know the story behind something interesting that happened with Tide Pods a few years ago, uh, which is people were eating them. Uh, so as you may remember, uh, the Tide Pod challenges were called. Uh, a lot of young people were actually challenging one another to eat Tide Pods. Now, if you're sitting there going, why would anyone eat uh, a mix of chemicals? You'd be right. It uh, doesn't make any sense let alone though people were doing it. Uh, and so imagine you're Procter & Gamble in this situation, right? You own Tide. You're trying to figure out, well, what should we do? People shouldn't be doing it in the first place. Well, they're doing it. What should we do about it? So they do what most companies do. They tell people not to. They put out a press release saying, hey, don't eat Tide Pods. Uh, if that wasn't enough, they hired the celebrity Rob uh, Gronk Gronkowski of uh, New England Patriots frame fame uh, to come on, shoot a video at them saying, hey, don't eat Tide Pods. It's a bad idea. Uh, no, 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 don't do it. Okay, so company thought that would be enough, that would be the end of it, uh, and that's when all hell broke loose. Uh, so if you look at the Google search data, for example, uh, searches for Tide Pods go up over 400% uh, after this Gronk video comes out. Voices, visits to poison control go up uh, as well. More in the next two weeks, uh, more than twice the number that had visited poison control in the last two years uh, showed up. Very simply, a warning became uh, a recommendation. Uh, and that's an example of what we talk about as reactants, right? Sometimes when we ask people not to do something, something, or when we ask them to do something, it makes them more likely to do the opposite. It has a boomerang uh, effect. Uh, and the reason, very simply, is people like to feel they have choice and autonomy. 
They like to feel like they're in control of their behavior. Why did I buy a pickup truck? I bought a pickup truck because I wanted a pickup truck. Why did I get that new software? I bought it because I think it's the best for my organization. But the challenge is when we try to tell someone something's a good idea, when we try to tell them, hey, buy this new software, here's the reasons why, it impinges on their ability to see that choice as driven by themselves. Even if it was something they might have done by themselves Regardless, even if we hadn't said anything, the fact that we suggest it makes it not clear who's in the driver's seat. Is it us or them? And so because of that, they push back and they become less likely to do it. And so this is a challenge, right? Because when we push people to do something, they actually become less likely to do it. Uh, and so the book, I talk about three, I think maybe even four ways to reduce this idea uh, of reactance to make people less, uh, less likely to push back against our messages. One of the examples you gave, and again, I look at my notes here because it was a good. It was Nafis Amin who runs a Sherpa Prep, and I thought yeah. that was a great example. And we're we're still on reactants. Can can you go through that example? Because I thought to me that was like the epitome uh, of sales and sales presentation in a nutshell. Yeah, so I, I think, uh, honestly, of the chapters, reactants is one of the most, that and uncertainty would be, I would say, the two that are most I would useful agree. for your audience. <laughs> um, but uh, so he's a guy who runs a, a test prep company. He was actually in one of my exec uh, education sessions a few months ago uh, and told this great story. So um, in addition to running the company, he sometimes steps in to teach uh, courses when some of the teachers are not available. Uh, and he found there was a consistent problem, which is students weren't studying enough. Uh, he wanted to get them to do something they didn't want to do, which is study more. But he found if he told them to study more, it didn't work. So if he said, hey, you need to study more, they'd say, oh, no, thanks. I don't want to. Or even worse, they'd drop out uh, of the class. And so he had to if figure I, out if a I, way. If I can interrupt, only because I want context for this one. Yeah. These, in, in the book, we talk about these are students who are trying to get into the top, what is it, 10% schools. They're taking yes, GMAT yeah. exams. They're taking GMAT, yeah. the LSAT. They're trying to get in the top schools uh, in, in the country and the world. Uh, you think they want to study, and they do. They just don't want to study enough of what, the, of what they need to. And again, most of your listeners are not trying to get people to study more, but they are trying to get people to do something they don't necessarily want to do. Uh, and so pushing them in this case wasn't working. And so what, what might be an alternate approach? And so he did something interesting. Rather than making statements uh, or, or requests, he started asking questions. So next time he taught the class, he had all the students there in front of him. He said, hey, why are you guys here? And they looked around the room and they said, oh, you know, I, I want to get into Stanford. I want to get into MIT. I want to get into Harvard. Okay. Uh, what do you need to get into those schools? Oh, I need a 720. I need a 710. I need a 740, whatever it might be. Do you know uh, how many people get those scores? Do you know how difficult it is to get those scores? Asking people a bunch of questions that encourage them to participate in that process. And so rather than them sitting there thinking about all the reasons why what he's suggesting is wrong, they're having a conversation that they're participating in. And then at the end of that conversation, he sort of moves the different questions, eventually saying, well, how much do you think you need to study? No, he's not telling them how much they need to study. He's asking them how much they need to study, right? And now, if they say something, they're committing to that conclusion. But if they don't, they start asking him questions. How much do you think we need to study? What do you think is the best course of action? And at the end of the day, many of them end up studying more and they end up doing better as a result. Because rather than him telling them what they needed to do, he got them to participate and commit to that conclusion. There's another story I, I talked to somebody, a, a guy who was running a startup, wanted people to work the weekend. No one wants to work the weekend. So rather than saying, hey, you need to work the weekend, in the next meeting, he says, hey, guys, what kind of company do you want to be? A good company or a great company? Now, we all know how we answer that question. Oh, we want to be a great company. Okay, great. Well, if we want to be a great company, here's what we need to do to get there. And so in a sense, it encourages people to put their own stake in the ground. That's what questions do, where they're now more likely to agree to whatever path you set up to get there because they've committed to that conclusion, right? Rather than them 
counter-arguing against everything you've suggested. They're listening to what you're suggesting and they're trying to figure out what's the best fit for them. And because it's the best fit for them, they're much more likely to go uh, along with it. I'll tell, is it okay if I share one more example? Yeah, but, but I, I want to emphasize something because like I said, I, I can just listen to you, man. I keep going. But one of the things I liked about the, the chapter, that specific section is that when I, when I, when I, again, when I talk, I've always said that, you know, the average salesperson practices what to say. The superior salesperson practices what to ask because to ask the yes. question, you actually guide the conversation. And so when, when, when I read that, I go, oh, that's brilliant. I've never, you know, put it in that context. Now you added this other one, this story. So if you got a third one, man, go ahead, throw yeah. it in there. And I think, by the way, you're exactly right. Not only um, is it collecting information, right, but it's helping you along the way. They're participating and now you have a better mm -hmm. sense of what they need. You have a better sense of what those barriers are. So rather than you assuming you know what they want, you actually have a sense uh, of what they want. Um, and, and just one more strategy I thought would be useful mm -hmm. for sales folks is, is doing what I call providing a menu. Uh, and so often when we suggest one thing in a client meeting, when we suggest one thing in a phone call, we all know what the client does, right? They sit there thinking about all the reasons why we're suggesting is wrong. Oh, sure, you'd suggest that. Oh, sure, you think that product or service is good because it's yours. Let me think about all the reasons that it's wrong. Essentially, people have an anti-persuasion radar, right? It's almost like those incoming projectiles that are listening to you talk. They're either ignoring or avoiding the message or even worse, counter-arguing and thinking about all the reasons that it's wrong. And so when you present one option, that's what they do. They think about all the reasons that it's wrong. Think about, you know, you're going out with a friend this weekend and they ask, what do you want to do this weekend? When you give one answer, let's go to the movies, they often think about all the reasons that's a bad idea. Mm -hmm. It's going to be yeah. a nice weekend. There's nothing I want to see. No, thanks. I don't want to do it. So what people do, what smart salespeople and consultants do is rather than giving people one option, they give them multiple. They give them at least two, sometimes even three or four options because what it nicely does is it shifts the listener's role. Rather than sitting there and thinking about all the reasons why what you suggested is wrong, they have a different, a different job. Their job is to figure out, well, which of those things you suggested is the best thing for them, which makes them much more likely to go along with at least one of them at the end of that conversation. Right? What, a so shift. Get, what a beautiful shift. Oh, yeah. Man. That, and, that, and, that's just, you can feel that when you actually say that, yeah. Yeah, and essentially guided choice, right? It's not infinite choice, and that's why I call it, talk about it as providing a menu. When you go to an Italian restaurant, they don't give you 600 options. They give you a limited set, but they focus that set and encourage your choices to go one way or another. And so guided choices do the same thing. You're giving people a choice, but you're choosing the choice, and by doing that, making it more likely they end up where you wanted them to end up to begin with. Yeah, I, I love the phrase. I, I've never heard it put it like that, guided choice. Right? I love that. And yeah, I even noticed your anti-persuasion system, I think you use, but anti-persuasion, your radar is just yeah. fine because it, it just gave you incoming, you know, oh, yeah. customers like incoming, they're trying to convince me and immediately their defenses go up. Oh, de definitely. I think we all experience that, right? Whether it's we delete that email when it comes in, whether the salesperson calls, we hang up the phone, whether the person knocks on our door. And, and I think counter-arguing is almost the worst because if someone hangs up on you, at least you know that they're not interested. But if someone's counter-arguing, they're sitting there, they look like they're listening, but they're not listening. They're not thinking about all the reasons you're right. They're thinking about all the reasons that you're wrong. And so you need to give them a different job. You need to give them something else to do besides put up those defenses. I'm with you on that. I'm with you. Let's go to the second one. So we've talked about reactants and your reduced acronym model. The next one is my favorite. Also, is uh, this was this is a tough choice between this one and uncertainty. But I love the endowment. Oh yeah, yeah. If we can touch that endowment just a little sure. bit, maybe set that one up with. Uh, yeah, I just love that. I'll let you set it up. Yeah. So, so the idea behind endowment, very simply, is not only are we scared of new things, right? We're neophobic. So when you're pitching a client on something new, which maybe we'll get to in a second, they're scared of that new thing. They're dealing with all the switching costs. But people are also attached to the old thing. 
And I think that's important to remember as, as sales folks, right? There's often a difference between selling people something they don't have already versus selling people something you're asking them to leave their old thing to do something new. Because you're not only trying to tell them how great that new thing is, that product, that service, that idea, you've also got to get them to let go of that old thing. And that's often very challenging. There's a great study that was done, for example, on something called the endowment effect, where what they do is they give some set of people a mug and they say, hey, here's a coffee mug, it's a tea mug, you can use it whatever beverage you want. Uh, how much would you uh, be willing to accept to sell it to someone else? So here's a mug, uh, what was your valuation of it? How much would you be willing to sell it to someone else? And then they give a separate set of people, they don't give them the mug, but they say, hey, you don't have the mug yet, but how much would you be willing to pay to buy the mug? Now what's nice here is that it's the same mug, whether you already have that mug or not, it's the same mug. And people's valuations of that same mug should be the same, but they're not. The people that already have that mug value it much more highly than the ones that don't. And that's the endowment effect. It's been shown in almost every domain we can think of, uh, from how we allocate budgets to the projects and brands and products that we use. Even homeowners, for example, the longer someone's lived in a home, the more they value it above the market price because they become attached to it. And so the challenge when we're trying to get people to change is not just telling them how great that new thing is, but helping them let go uh, of the old. Because the problem is if they can't let go of the old, they're going to be very reticent to change to the new. And in some sense, we've got them, they're holding on to their mug, right? They're a mug seller. And we've got to make them realize, hey, you've got to separate you from that mug and make you more willing to consider something new. Because if you have higher valuation for the thing you have already, it's going to be really hard to get you to switch. And I, and I like the fact that, you know, one, is, it is about mental ownership, right? The mental ownership is there. I own this, therefore I value it more. Yeah. Uh, and also, you know, as you were talking, I go, you know, we talk about switching costs. Most salespeople think of switching costs is it wasn't going to switch from system A to system B and are thinking financial metrics terms, right? Yes. But there's an emotional cost oh, that certainly. most people don't consider. Can you add a little bit of flavor on that? Sure. Yeah. And so when we think about switching costs, certainly money is one of them, right? You have to pay for a new system. You have to pay for a new phone. Time and effort, though, are also costs, right? So if I'm going to have to learn a new system, uh, it's going to take me a while. How's it going to integrate with my existing systems? That might be an emotional cost. And all of those things are costs that might prevent people from doing something new. The challenge is also when those costs are incurred and when the benefits are incurred, right? So think about it. The costs of change are often upfront. They're now. You have to pay the money before you get that new software. You have to uh, take the time and the effort to learn a new system at the beginning to install it before you actually get to figure out if it's any good. And so the costs are now and the benefits are later, which, by the way, people hate, right? If you ask most people, hey, you know, by the way, you should eat kale salad every day rather than have a cookie so you can be healthy later on in life, most people would say, um, no thanks. I'm going to stick with my cheeseburger and my, and my cookie, right? They want the good stuff now and the bad stuff later. And so this is the cost-benefit timing gap, right? Costs are now and they're certain. Benefits are later and they're uncertain. And so whether those costs are time or money or effort, but also those emotional costs, we have to figure out how to lessen them. Otherwise, it's going to be really hard to get people to switch. Okay, I love it. Before, we're not going to finish the rest of the model. And so what I wanted to, in fact, you, want, you have to go buy the book. I mean, seriously, buy the book to get the rest of the model and get the rest of the information because it's really that good. But I wanted you to give some final commentary on, you know, you work with a lot of companies, Jonah. You know, as you're working through this material and, you know, your book, uh, Contagious, right? Yes. Uh, past books and this book. You know, what are some of the things you're seeing? I mean, from your perspective, you can, you know, you're talking to different companies. What are some of the things you're seeing and what, what's some, what are some advice what is advice you can give small, medium-sized businesses, frontline salespeople on how to use some of these strategies or begin to implement some of them? 
some practical stuff. Yeah. I mean, the place I always start when I work with clients and it's, um, it's overused, but I think it's extremely useful is that customer journey, right? Who is that person? Call them a customer, a client, whatever you, whatever you want. What does their journey look like? And what are the stages in that journey and how can you influence uh, those stages? I think a lot of companies come in too late, right? Uh, they come in, um, you know, pitching really hard right near when the decision is being made. They don't think a lot about the steps that happen upstream in that journey and how to link those different steps, right? How do we connect them so someone's heard about us or thinks about us or understands the benefits of our offering before they get to that decision-making point? Um, think about what those upstream stages are and, and how they can influence them. But at the core, it's really about figuring out what those barriers are, right? If you're listening and you're going reactants, that's exactly what I'm facing, then that's a key barrier. Focus on that. If we talked about endowment, he said, oh my God, that's exactly my client. Well, that's a good one to think about. Um, it could be uncertainty that's the one you're facing. It could be corroborating evidence. It could be distance. I think the challenge is that too often as salespeople, we use the same tools every time. Regardless of what the problem is, we put out, trot out our hammer and we're banging on whatever it is. And sometimes if it's a nail, a hammer works really well. But if it's a screw, a nail's not going to be so effective, right? We've got to be more like a doctor. A doctor doesn't pre uh, prescribe a, a shin splint or a finger splint every time someone comes in. They go, well, what's your problem? Let me do a diagnostic. Let me figure out what those barriers are that are preventing change. And only then let me think about solving them. And so I would take a step back, figure out what those barriers are, those impediments are in the first place. Think about whether they're the five we've talked about today. If not, no problem. But once you understand what those barriers are, you can do a much better job of solving them. And you use the customer journey, and, and I'll just parallel with the, with the actual sales process, because throughout the sales process, you know, you know, as you look at your model, you know, there are so many places I can just layer that in, where I can utilize to, as you say, reduce the barrier, right? Or, you know, I guess reduce the, you know, the coefficient of friction, if I can put yeah. it that way. And, you know, I, I, I want to add one thing before I forget, because I, I know I'm going to forget this. You gave me the best definition of trust, and I don't think you meant to in the book. Okay. But I, I was like, it was, I've, I've heard the word trust bantered about for like years, decades now, and yep. I've never heard anybody give me a good definition. And then I saw yours, and I think you just wrote it, because you, you, know, you could tell when somebody's emphasizing something, but you just wrote it. And one was, it, it, it's a two-part component that I never looked at. The first one is, take my point of view, empathize with what I'm going through really understand my business. I got that. Yep. But then if I did the plus sign and you added something and the customer has to know you have their best interest in mind. Yes. And, and it was almost like you just like you slid that phrase in the book and I go, that's brilliant. And, you know, just let, let's end on that because I think, you know, at the end of the day, we can, we can try to persuade people, but if you they can't get them to trust you, man, oh, yeah. it's just, they're not going to buy. Yeah. I certainly agree. Yeah. And I, and I think that's a challenge. Often we're very self-focused. We're egocentric. We know our product or service is great. We want to convince some, somebody else. And I think this book is all about saying, how can we get them to convince themselves? How can we figure out what those barriers are? How can we mitigate them? How can we show them they can trust us? And how can we use all the tools at our arsenal to help them convince themselves, right? If we've got something that's really great, if we show them how great it is, they're going to believe it and they're going to figure it out themselves. In a nutshell, the catalyst is about let's not sell them. Let's get them to buy in. Yep. Can I, can I do that? You get that's, that's Jonah, perfect. I like it. Jonah Berger's book, The Catalyst. Get it. It is available March 10th, I believe. It is. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Get the book. Get the book. Thank you, Jonah. <laughs> Thanks for having me.